My name is Naja Young, and I have chosen two books, both by Octavia E. Butler. She is one of my absolute favorite authors. She's a Black woman, science fiction, and speculative fiction author. And I've chosen these two books as objects that mean the most to me that were very influential in my formative years as a young adult and as a child, because I come from a family of educators, either formally or informally. My mother is a cultural arts educator. My grandmother was a teacher for many years. All of my grandmother's children, whether or not they have college degrees or what have you, all inherited my grandmother's love for reading and learning and meeting people from different cultures. My aunt Darlene, God rest her soul, was one person who turned me on to Octavia E. Butler. And then I sort of picked up the banner, if you will, and started evangelizing about the greatness of Octavia E. Butler. Octavia Butler is a Black woman, and her books are about Afrofuturism. If you look at anything that's set in the future, even things made in 2021, there are very few people of color. And if we are there, there can only be only one of us as a representative. So there's only one Black person, Lieutenant Uhuru in Star Trek. There's Lieutenant Sulu, right? There's Sulu, one Asian person. Everyone else is Caucasian or an alien. And so it's very disconcerting. It was very disconcerting for me as a young person growing up and not seeing me reflected back in these programs that I loved so much. And I think that's why I chose to become a filmmaker is so that I can write stories that reflect my experiences, that reflect the experiences of people around me, and so that I can teach others that it's important for us to tell our own stories. Welcome to Our Seven Neighbors, Season 2. Stories from the Black spiritual diaspora. In partnership with the Muslim Wellness Foundation and Bayon Islamic Graduate School, the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary presents a new season of our podcast, Our Seven Neighbors. This season is hosted by Dr. Camila Mukman Rashad, and we are so glad you are here. You just heard a story from this week's guest, Naja Young. We asked all our guests to share a photo or object from their youth that was formative in their identity. My name is Kim Schultz, and I am the coordinator of creative initiatives at the Interreligious Institute and producer of this podcast. So if you're ready, let's join the conversation between Dr. Rashad and Naja Young and hear more about how that particular author shaped her life. Welcome. My name is Dr. Camila Mukmin Rashad, and I am a visiting assistant professor of psychology and Muslim studies at Chicago Theological Seminary. And I am so thrilled that I have with me on this episode of Our Seven Neighbors, Miss Naja Young, who is a filmmaker, a creative, a photographer, a writer. I mean, the list can go on. <laughs> but thank you so much for, for joining Our Seven Neighbors. I don't know where to start because Octavia Butler was one of my favorite authors. And I thought it was a really proud sort of mama moment when my daughter, my 18-year-old daughter now, started to become more curious about her writing, right? So I was trying to like not be too eager and like overbearing about it. But I was just like, you know, I have all of her books. So, you know, here's where you can start. You can start anywhere. But just, you know, I'm so happy that you're reading. 
And so I want to first ask you, what is your favorite sort of scene or line from one of Miss Butler's books? This is so crazy because I often think about this all the time because people are like, well, what's your favorite one? I'm like, favorite? Because as you can see right here in front of you, mind of my mind has been worn, is worn out. It's like my little personal Bible. I guess I just, I pick up parts of it and I'm like, I'm going to reread this again. And this is, I like buy these books every time I move to a new city and I lose a book. I'm like, I got to buy this book again. <laughs> like, I don't like I got to buy it again. I guess my thing is, is there's a short story. I think it's in Blood Child where our protagonist, the black woman dies and she sees God in the afterworld is a white man. And she says, why are you white? And he says, I'm in your mind. You created this image. I was like, oh my God, you did this. I only appear as you imagined me. Absolutely. And so I keep that in mind when I think about conversations with God, a higher higher being, the creator, however we, we address that entity. I think about that all the time. And even when I date people of different faiths, I'm always cognizant of, we might be able to come to some sort of understanding and agreement, but there are certain iconography my children cannot worship. They cannot part of that. Because if I were to have children, it would be extremely detrimental to their psyche. And I understand that's detrimental to their psyche. So no. Absolutely. So there's actually a hadith or tradition in the Muslim tradition where it's the Prophet Muhammad saying that God has said, I am as my servant thinks of I am, right? Or I am as my servant thinks of me. So that's immediately what I thought about is, you know, how we conceive of or interpret or imagine what or who God is or gods, right? Has so much to do with what we've internalized and how those thoughts or assumptions or beliefs were also introduced in our family of origin. So my first question is, If for a moment, I want you to think of your life as a story or as a film or a play, and that film or that play or that novel has a title, what would the title of your life story be? The Unbelievable Life and Remarkable Stories of a Black Girl. Oh, I love that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if this story, this novel, The Unbelievable Life and Other Remarkable Stories of a Black Girl, has chapters. Where would this chapter fall of you falling in love with Octavia Butler, of learning, of seeing yourself in the future, of embracing your uniqueness, your Blackness? Where would that fall in your life story? It would probably be around maybe chapter three or four, The Discovery. Okay. Tell me more. So I grew up in a African-centered household. My parents are self-described revolutionaries, if you will. And so, you know, I kind of went through this phase. It was like, why can't we just be normal? Can we just be normal? Can people really just think my name is Nikki as opposed to Naja? Yes. (laughs) Nikki is my nickname, but it's an acronym for Naja Imani Camille Young. Oh, wow. Okay. 
My whole family, I have whole family members that probably don't even know my real name. But it's funny because I'm always surprised by those who do know my real name because everybody just calls me, you know, by that acronym. But so I went through this phase of really wanting to be like everyone else, trying to be like the Huxtables or Middle America, constantly asking my father about we're our social class and things like that. And my dad would be like, I mean, we're middle class, like we're lower middle class. And that was not good enough. So I would restate the question so that he could give me the answer that I wanted. Yes. Just obsessed with all of these things. And by the time I got to high school, I went to high school in 1987. I graduated in 91. And during that time in hip hop, we had sort of an era of black consciousness in pop culture. So you had Public Enemy, KRS-One, and a whole bunch of others, X-Clan and everything else, Poor Righteous Teachers. A lot of people were discovering faiths outside of their own and taking on alternative or African names. Mm -hmm. So I finally felt like, oh, now I'm cool because I don't have to change my name. My name is, you know what I'm saying? So. It was like this period of discovery of my aunt when I was a freshman, I moved from Cleveland to Pittsburgh and we were staying with my aunt at the time. And she was the one who introduced me to these Octavia Butler books and to Frank Herbert's Dune series. And so I had begun reading around this time. I was obsessed. I was I had always been an avid reader, but these books I was obsessed with. And I was reading them, you know, and then having the greatest conversations with my aunt and my uncles and my grandmother about the books. And then I started turning on my own immediate family to the books and anybody that I would meet, I would be like, have you read this? Have you heard of this? That means the start of your evangelizing started with your family. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, that's why I would say this chapter of my life with these associated with these books would be called the discovery of maybe the acceptance because I was like, my birthright made me cool in this era. I love that. Your birthright made you cool. Yeah. So now I want to think about this idea of perhaps even a prequel to the unbelievable life and other remarkable stories of a Black girl. Because one of the aspects of Miss Butler's writing that I also appreciate is the spiritual diversity, right? That there isn't, it's, it's not only are we in the future, that we're still embracing, struggling, coming to know, coming to discover the divine, right? And what does that mean in terms of how the divine shows up and manifests in our own lives? And it was also the first time for me that I could see myself being Muslim in the future. And so I I want to think about in terms of your story, the prequel, to get an understanding of your spiritual lineage, right? You said your parents are self-described revolutionaries. You grew up in an African-centered house. And so if there was a prequel to your story that featured your parents, right? And also your grandmother, you said it was an educator and you took up the banner of almost as activism as education, it sounds like. What would our readers, what would our listeners discover in this prequel about your parents and the spiritual lineage that sort of begins with them and then flows through you? The interesting thing is on the surface, my mom's side of the family and my dad's side of the family appear to be so very disparate, mm. so very different types of people. Okay. However, they're two sides of the same coin. Mm. On my dad's side of the family, 
very, I would say, my dad's side of the family were not religious on that side, but spiritual. And my great-grandfather once told my dad, there's a man in Louisiana that could take your sins away with a goat. Hmm. Now, that is nothing but hoodoo, traditional, indigenous African belief system yes, right there. Absolutely. And my great-grandfather, you know, grew up in a in like a Christian household, even though, like I said, he and his children were not particularly religious, but they were spiritual. And it was kind of rooted in in Christianity, but that's what he told my dad. My parents met in the 1970s after my dad got out of, he did two tours in Vietnam. Hmm. And he met my mother through, actually, my mother knew his uncle first, my uncle Duck, bless his soul. And my dad was actually talking to one of her friends at the time. Kind of like Gypsy. <laughs> It's a mess. My mother is always like, I did not steal your daddy from Paulette. She never had your daddy. Right, right, mom. But she they met because they were all going somewhere and she had to sit on my dad's lap in the back seat of the car. And she said, All I thought was, I don't want to sit on this little nasty man's lap. I don't know him. Four children later. <laughs> My dad passed away in 2015, but girl, they were there together the whole time. And it's funny how you find your soulmate, if you will, because I always find, I I feel like if I were to describe my parents' marriage and their relationship is they were not only married, but they were comrades. Oh, that's so beautiful. So pan-Africanist to the core, interested in lineage and history. And actually, interestingly enough, on my mom's side of the family, which was Catholic because my Great-grandmother was raised in a Catholic orphanage in Pittsburgh. Mm. She had quite a different experience than my dad's family. She grew up in this strict sort of Catholic upbringing. She can remember coming up north to Pittsburgh on a wagon, is what she says. Wow. Her father's name was Lee Hall, but she doesn't remember very much about him, except that he was very dark with long, straight hair. And the nuns used to really talk negatively and speak negatively to my great grandmother on my mom's side and call her a dirty black Indian, dirty blackfoot Indian. Hmm. The interesting thing is that with genealogy, we can look these things up and DNA tests, and we haven't been able to discover necessarily Native American blood. Mm-hmm. That. So it's really interesting, but her features are what people would think of as Native American, except she had very thick, coarse hair. Mm -hmm. Um, But they used to cut her hair in those like 1920 bobs. And when I saw the picture of my great-grandmother on the steps of the orphanage, she was one of few Black orphans in this orphanage in Pittsburgh, PA, you see nothing but sadness in her eyes. Oh, my. Nothing but sadness. They were definitely torturing her. Definitely She has had it so rough, but she grew up, she married, and she had three children of her own. And she, at a very early age, recognized that the fact that Black children didn't have Black baby dolls. And so she started buying up white baby dolls from like the secondhand store and thrift shops and painting them brown. She would actually go buy the paint and paint them brown and then give them to you. For Christmas and holidays and stuff. Uh, What year was this? I mean, 
I can remember finding the dolls and paint when I was a little girl and I was born in 73. So she had been doing this since before I was born. Wow. And that's so I like to tell people, and when I'm interviewing others, I've heard this term when people come from folks who are Garveyites and things like that, followers of Marcus Garvey. My people are race people Mm. on both sides. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Always about uplifting the race. Education was important, but also a trade. So having a trade and knowing how to do anything. And my great-grandfather on my dad's side, Big Daddy, um, the one who said, that's what we called him, Big Daddy. (laughs) And he was originally from Bolivar County, Mississippi. Mm. And he would say, they would say Big Daddy could build a house by himself. Wow. He was a plumber, a carpenter, uh, did furnaces, all kind of things. And on my mom's side, my great grandmother did the best that she could with her three children because she largely raised them on her own. My grandmother had my mom young. She ended up having eight children with her husband. And my grandmother went back to school as her youngest three children were growing up, went back and ended up graduating summa cum laude from okay, grandma. University of Pittsburgh All right. and getting her master's degree in education and then became a teacher after she basically raised wow. her children. Wow. And what stands out to me is it's almost this unrelenting desire to know oneself, to see oneself and then to create a life, right, out of the circumstances that you are given, right? And so you recall the picture of your great-grandmother sitting on the steps of the orphanage, but she is still flowing through your grandmother, right, who goes back to school, earns her master's degree, and also flowing through your mother and through you, right? You said you you kind of picked up this banner. And so the meeting of this woman, right, who sits on this nasty man's lap, <laughs> Because she has no choice, but raised Catholic. And this man who's come back from doing two tours in Vietnam. And, you know, it sounds like in his household, there was what I would call kind of like an African Christianity. So this sort of fusion of indigenous sort of practices or just ways of knowing, right? They may not have called it a practice and they come together. So what do they create? What sort of spiritual context and ethos do they create in your household? My dad, it's funny. I used to always think, uh, my parents know everybody. Like they know some of everybody. I wouldn't be shocked if they would ask, what's your parents' name? And literally be like, oh, I know him. Um, (laughs) I know her. Because my dad was like, you know, after he got out of Vietnam, before he came back to Cleveland, Ohio, you know, he was in New York. He was in Philly. He was everywhere. He traveled the world that way. And so consequently, and also my uncle Donald is Muslim. He was an imam, my grandmother's brother on my mom's side. So he grew up in that Catholic household, but he became an imam. And he gave Kalim Shahada to like more than half of Pittsburgh. And I'm serious. No way. Seriously. So like people that I know that I'm friends with, they call my Uncle Donald, Uncle Donald too, mm. or Muhammad, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, like, y'all know that's really my Uncle Muhammad. Like, you know what I'm saying? Or that's really my Uncle Donald. Mm-hmm. And they're like, whatever, girl. That's, that's everybody's Uncle Donald, you know? He also used to go to the prisons and, and minister there to the prisons all throughout Pennsylvania. In any case, I was born in 73. So prior to me being born, my father had already been in like 
all through Harlem, Brooklyn, these different places, listening to a bunch of people speak. And my mother was already involved in study groups and different things like that in Cleveland, Ohio. She was going to Cuyahoga Community College at the time. In Cleveland, we call it, or Northeast Ohio, they just call it Tri-C. So she was going and she was getting associates in urban planning. My dad was kind of kind of lightweight going. He was like, I was in and out. I just sort of, you know, in one door, out the other. <laughs> right. But they also, they like they had this crew of sort of other affiliated and unaffiliated revol- Black revolutionaries and Pan-Africanists that they were all friends with. And my parents were kind of on the same trajectory separately. And then when they started dating They started going down this pathway together. They were in a study group that was studying traditional Yoruba spirituality by way of Cuba. Hmm. So they started studying this. And my father had already met a member of the vanguard of this movement in New York. His name was Baba Osejimin Adefumi I. Okay, And he later founded Oyotunji in South Carolina, the first African like village in the United States. And so Baba Arefumi I was one of the first African-Americans to go to Cuba and become initiated as a priest in Lukumi. My dad met him already, had already received like an African name, if you will. My dad, he was like, you know, I want an African name. And so Baba Adefumi the first said, okay, well, you know, what about the name Ibiyinka? Hmm. And everybody started calling him EB for short. My father would just told, and my whole family, my, my dad's side of the family was with it. If somebody had a problem with it, they didn't tell him. They had my dad, always held my dad in the utmost esteem. Oh, so they amazing. was like, boy, call yourself EB. Be going to call that boy EB. You know <laughs> Now, and so tell me the, the definition or the meaning and significance of that name. Ibiyinka in Yoruba means surrounded by my family when I was given birth to. Most of the times when you receive a name, you have a child naming ceremony, mm-hmm. an Essentai. But my dad was a grown man when he received his Yoruba name. So he didn't have a naming ceremony, but he took that name. And that is what my dad literally... When he passed away, like I put Samuel Young, which is his government name. And people say, who is like, that? Who is that? Exactly. <laughs> people was like, I mean, even like I said, even family members were like, who, who Sam, who Samuel Young? My mother consequently also wanted an African name and she went to her mother and said, I'm going to change my name. I want my name, me and E.B., are about to, and my, I had to be an infant or maybe even just before I was born, I'm going to start using that African name as well. And we're studying the Yoruba religion and the Yoruba people. And that's what we were told when they got a divination, mm. a reading, that that's where your ancestry comes from, your lineage, mm. your strongest lineage. And so my grandmother, devout Catholic as she was, is also a Pan-Africanist, yes. also a race woman. Yes. She said, okay. And she helped select my mom's name, which my mother has gone by the name Yetunde, which means mother returns my entire life. Now, I've got chills. (laughs) Just thinking about all of these 
relationships, these chance meetings, right? These seeming coincidences that bring your parents together, but it's it's almost like this flowing river. It's like, okay, we have these tributaries, but they're all flowing in the same direction. And your parents meet. And it sounds like, even if there was a little, you know, side eye in the beginning, it sounds like what they found in each other was like kindred spirits, right? That we are just searching and seeking. And now I have this comrade, I have this friend, I have this lover, I have this partner who is going to search in this path with me. That's so beautiful. I'm with you. I'm like, there's only so much coincidence in the world. Absolutely. Let me say this. Before my mother started studying the Yoruba, traditional Yoruba spirituality, which is called Ifa Basam, Orisha worship by others, or Lukumi, as they call it in Cuba, My mother actually was Muslim for a hot second, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't her spiritual food. Mm -hmm. And the way that my mom's family works is it's all right if you change your spiritual food to suit you. Right. Nobody disparaged her. Nobody talked. My uncle Donald didn't go, what? You can't be. My mother said, girl, when I was revoluting, she was before she did, (laughs) as she likes to say, when I was revoluting before I had chick a child is what she says. I was crazy Jamila. That's what they used to say. Crazy Jamila. They're going crazy Jamila. And the brothers at that time that she was studying Islam with wanted to practice a more conservative form of Islam. Mm. My mother was like, yeah, I'm not going to cover up. I mean, I wear my head wrapped. And I always like to tell people, like, my family is like, we're Muslim adjacent, definitely <laughs> Black Catholic adjacent. Um, (laughs) I'm smiling so much because it speaks to the fluidity and the embrace, the acceptance of these different paths, right? And it's almost like an acknowledgement that there is some aspect of who we are that we're constantly seeking, right? And so when Muslim, Christian, like all of these sort of expressions also flow through my family. And so when people Almost like, like, let me see if this sort of resonates with my spirit. Let me see if this is closer to what I feel is maybe my ancestors' prayer, right? There's people are very either curious or it's almost like, all right, it just is this knowing of, okay, right? This doesn't, this doesn't have to mean a rejection, right? This is just an expansion, right, of who we are. So the last question I have is then with all of these, again, these these tributaries that are flowing into this, this river of diversity and spirituality and discovery, give me an example, either kind of a moment or a memory that sort of captures the beauty of this diversity as it resides, even in your immediate family. Wow. I was just reflecting when you were speaking, I was reflecting on the conversations around the dinner table at family gatherings, specifically Christmas or Thanksgiving, like big Thanksgivings, because my grandmother had eight children. Mm. And within those eight children, there's such diversity. So Grandma Alice's brother is my Uncle Donald Muhammad, the imam. Mm -hmm. His wife is my Aunt Wadia. And then in the family, my mother is a Yoruba priestess. My dad's a Yoruba priest. They're initiated as priests within our spiritual tradition. My brothers are initiated as priests as well. Mm. All of 
my nieces and nephews from my brothers all have Yoruba names. If they don't have Yoruba names, they have a Muslim name or a name from Africa. So we have an Asada, Amira, Adenike, Adejoye, Adelana, Adetunde. You know, like, <laughs> like we are those people. We cultural to the bone, to the core, right? And then we have uncles who are very, I have an uncle who is still very active in the Catholic church, but a member of, and I was also a member of this. There's an organization called Peter Claver, the Knights and Ladies of Peter Claver. It's a black Catholic society. My grandmother was a member and I was a member of the junior organization as well. Look, like, you know, it's spiritual food. It's there to enrich your life. It shouldn't take away from who you are or make you feel less than. And so people are like, I don't even know what y'all are. Like, I don't we're get it. Like, it. One minute, yeah, we're all, and that's what we say. We're all of it, mm. which is why all of us really stand firmly as Pan-Africans. Because mm. we really see our struggle. The struggle is our struggle. Yes. And our people. Mm-hmm. Not just those who are descendants of uh, American slavery or, you know, American versus Caribbean or anything like we really see it is we are a family. Your struggle is our mm-hmm. struggle. If you're not free, we can't possibly be free. And so it is a it's a global movement yes. for our freedom, for our exploration of our indigenous ancestry mm-hmm. or or indigenous spiritual belief systems. Or how do we incorporate this into what we do without trying to take on someone else's cultural identity? Because that is different. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. And I have to tell you that this conversation has been nourishing for me. Just to kind of see these kind of common elements, these threads of, you know, there's an Uncle Doug, there's an imam, there's a priestess, right? Like this is what I think makes the tapestry, the quilt, kind of the weaving together of who we are so beautiful. And that this is, again, something that's not, it's ordinary and extraordinary at the same time, right? That we can flow in and out of one's sort of ways of being. And it's not a competition. It's not, it's what you bring, how you enhance the way that I see the world because of who you are, right? Becomes a way of learning, of observation, of appreciation rather than rejection or denigration. And I think this is one of the really beautiful aspects of Black spiritual diaspora, Black spiritual lineage, is that we recognize like the multiplicity. There's not one way. There are pathways to discover the divine, to be in the world, world, to understand oneself. And isn't that a beautiful thing, right? To know that there's multiple pathways. Multiple and everybody's spiritual food is different because we're all different people. We all need something different mm-hmm. and it offers us something different. Right, right. And instead of having to just choose one dish, right? Sometimes it's all of the above. It's a la carte. <laughs> and and we'll find what, what suits us. That's right. I'm going to turn down a senior citizen Black woman who says, baby, let me pray over you right fast. The Lord told me to pray over you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say no, because I'm not. No, I want all of her blessings yes. and prayers. Please put your hand on my forehead. You got some oil. What, what's happening? <laughs> yes, ma'am. It's a yes, ma'am. With that, I want to thank you so much for your time. I'm just... 
again, just kind of smiling and feeling so much joy because of the connection and also the similarities and and the beauty that I can just, you just offered us a window, right, into this beauty of one family from Cleveland, Ohio, by way of Mississippi, right, by way of all of these different places, kind of flowing together um, and creating something, something beautiful and something worth celebrating. And with that, poet Lucille Clifton said, say it clear and it will be beautiful. So I want to ask you, what would you like our listeners to know so that you say it clear and it will be beautiful? You are loved. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing and how badly you're feeling during the day, you are loved. Oh, um, so thank you so much, Ms. Naja Young, for your time and for your stories. Amazing. We hope you enjoyed that story and conversation between Dr. Rashad and Naja Young. Thank you so much for joining us. More information on our guest, Naja Young, as well as her formative photo, can be found at OurSevenNeighbors.com. Learn more about Chicago Theological Seminary at ctschicago.edu. We hope you will join us next time for another episode of Season 2, Stories from the Black Spiritual Diaspora. Thank you for listening to Our Seven Neighbors. We would love it if you would please share this podcast. You can find us at the IRI on Facebook or Instagram. And if you feel compelled, tell us your story, share a photo, or better yet, share it with someone around you. And as the poetry of Lucille Clifton offers, say it clear, and it will be beautiful. See you next time. Mm-hmm.